Welcome to the Hurricane Labs podcast. I'm Heather, and this week we're doing a special double release to follow up on the log for shell vulnerability. So this is a two-part series. Be sure to check out Pentester's Perspective, log for shell in our links. Today, we're going to hear from a few of our SOC analysts about what they've been seeing from a blue team perspective. So thanks everyone for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves and then we'll dive in. Hey everybody, uh, my name is Tony Robinson. I'm a senior analyst on the SOC team at Hurricane Labs. Uh, a lot of what I did with regards to Log4j was, you know, kind of taking the detections that the rest of the SOC put together and our Splunk search devs and, you know, kind of went from customer to customer to see whether or not there were any major issues as a result of Log4j. Additionally, I wrote up a blog post and did a small video, like kind of demoing, exploiting this on like an older version of Minecraft with an older version of the Java JRE. I was legitimately surprised with how easy it was to exploit once um, you had all the right things in all of the right places. I'm Kurt Wolf. I'm uh, one of the uh, security architects for the SOC. Um, I helped design and work on making the uh, Log4j search that we used. Josh Newbecker, uh, also an architect and worked on creating our detections around Log4Shell. Dustin Miller, a uh, SOC analyst that uh, helped put out the initial advisory and do some threat hunting. So the last time we talked, security teams had just learned about Log4Shell like less than a week earlier. Now, a little around a month has passed. So what have we learned about this vulnerability? Correct me if I'm wrong, but there haven't been any major breaches as a result of this, right? Does that mean the worst of the danger has passed or is the risk still there? To the extent, like I've been kind of following it on um, information security, social media, you know, seeing what other researchers are talking about, seeing the things that they're discussing. And to the to this point so far, I really haven't heard of any major compromises surrounding it. But it's one of those things that is going to be a forever day vulnerability that's going to be there for a long time, kind of lurking in the uh, in the uh, unkempt corners of uh, both organizations uh you know shadows where like a lot of their critical infrastructure lies or where you know some of their core software lies that perhaps might use log4j um and might not necessarily be publicly exposed to the internet but might still be vulnerable regardless so i have a feeling that it's gonna be one of those things that'll be there for a while that they just aren't aware of because they might not have wanted to you know, test it or see if they see if their core applications were vulnerable initially. But it's I just have a feeling that it, that's going to be one of those issues that we're going to be dealing with for a while. I also feel like there's not going to be as much public disclosure of attacks that were started by Log4j simply because of the newsworthiness of the initial vulnerability. Um, I know I think it was. Last week or over the weekend, there was a lot of um, exploitation seen for VMware Horizon that was uh, going on and being reported about. And I just feel like moving forward, it's going to be something that companies won't want getting out that it was caused, the, like the initial exploitation was via log for shell because it was such a big deal when it happened. The tack on the end of all of it is you also have to have some of the companies that probably didn't take the time to, like Tony said, realize that they're actually vulnerable to what's taking place and may have just kind of been like, okay, cool, 
carried on or may not have even known what's going on. And those might be the companies that are compromised and not don't even know it. So, yeah, it's uh, kind of funny because like a little while back, like I saw um, a meme like about people saying like how they were all worried about Log4j and testing their infrastructure for it. And then meanwhile, like somebody suggested that like there was a vulnerability and confluence from one of their Atlassian suites that they were hosting in-house and that they got compromised with that because they were too busy with Log4j. So it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, you're not really paying it. I guess the moral of the story is you're not really paying attention to it, but it's still there. Um, like as an example, you know, with me saying that you might not necessarily be aware of that you're vulnerable, it might be an internal only application or an intranet application that might not be publicly accessible, but when an attacker gets access to your network and they're trying to pivot, or if you have a penetration test going on and they're looking for ways to gain access to other systems, they're gonna say, oh, this is a Java application, it's running on Tomcat. Uh, let's see if Log4j is vulnerable. And then they might just throw a Log4j payload at it and you know pivot to another part of your network that you might not want them to be on. What about uh, some of the other Log4j vulnerabilities as the patches came out? Are there any things that people should like watch out for or any other issues that are kind of cropping up as a sort of a ripple effect from this? One thing I did see wasn't necessarily vulnerabilities in later versions of Log4j. It was patches that were released by vendors who were using Log4j that like I saw a couple vendors that published patches that first weekend, but the the patches they published only had the workarounds, not the actual log4j patches. And those workarounds were later proven to be ineffective. So those vendor patches didn't actually resolve the issue while patching log4j itself did. Gotcha. So what is it that makes log4shell so tricky? Like, why can't you necessarily trust that your log not showing like a log4j payload means that you are secure? Kind of a difficult thing to to assess, you know, like it, it kind of goes back to the conversation where you might not necessarily be aware that a system's vulnerable because it's in your intranet or it might not have been tested by, you know, your vulnerability scanners or vulnerability assessment team because it's considered a core part of your business or, you know, a place where attackers aren't expected to get access to from the public internet, you know, a place that they might have to pivot. So it's a hard question to answer. If, I mean, even if it was patched, like there are like, like uh, some people have noticed there have been a couple of issues with some of the patches, maybe not fully covering all of the use cases or maybe not covering uh, cases where there are gadgets or other ways to get uh, code execution other than, um, you know, telling the uh, vulnerable job application to go download this class file. Um, that was the uh, trust URL code base uh, feature. So I, it's just somewhat difficult question to answer. I don't know if anybody else, anybody else has anything to say about that. I think there's also a lot of uh, obfuscation that can be done with log for log for shell that makes it difficult to oh, detect. Yeah. And also, where are you logging? Uh, where do you even have visibility into where uh, the log for shell payload is? It can be difficult, you know, especially moving forward with that, because I think uh, a lot of the low hanging fruit has been patched or resolved, or there are detections around it. But uh, the more interesting, difficult ways of exploiting this, like not just using 
the user agent field or something in an HTTP message that would get logged. Uh, maybe a post request where something gets logged or anything else. It's just wherever you have input that can be controlled by an attacker that then gets logged by log for shell. That's where your attack service is. Yeah, I think like uh, one of our previous podcasts, I talked a little bit about that. Like somebody was suggesting like if you had like a Proxmark reader or if you had like a physical access system and you encoded a Proxmark card to have um, a log for j payload on it, you know, that could be like something I was like, man, I didn't think that this attack service would be vulnerable. But, you know, if it's running Java and it's using log for j it's, you know, it serves as attack service and it's just one of those weird corner cases that you kind of don't think about. The word of the day for this vulnerability is ubiquitous, right? Because log4j is in so many things, like even some kitchen appliances have, can have Java. So now we've talked about security and IoT on our podcast before, but what's the big thing when it comes to IoT and security in the face of log4shell? Well, I know like Java's big tagline is that billions of devices run Java. Um, well, there's two ways that you can take it, that there might be a lot more stuff in your home network that might be vulnerable to this than you might imagine. Or you could take it to mean as like, well, it runs Java. That doesn't necessarily mean it has log4j on it. But, you know, that, that was like a whole other thing as well. Like when, you know, people were poking Minecraft and managed to get code execution off of it, it was like, nobody thought that this all, that this Java-based video game, you know, that mainly, everybody plays it, but it's mainly played by little kids. Nobody thought for a second that, you know, Log4j was a dependency on this, on this, uh, on this game. So I personally really don't care for smart devices in my home, but then again, I'm somewhat of a Luddite when it comes to that kind of stuff. Like I've got plenty of computers and, you know, I run my, uh, my virtual machines on it, you know, do all my uh, reproduction testing and all of that stuff on it. But, you know, smart devices or like, you know, Alexa or, you know, um, smart cleaning devices. I think we have like one robot vacuum in our house. And I was just like, don't you put that on the Wi-Fi? just let it do its job. Uh, I'm not giving this thing an internet connection. So I guess it kind of lines up with what your risk tolerance is. Like if you like, if you enjoy using smart devices and you think that they add features to your life that you really like, then you have somewhat of an elevated risk, but I really don't think very many of those devices are going to have log4j on them or they're going to that or they're going to be using those vulnerable libraries. I guess if there was anything to get out of that ramble is just because it uses Java doesn't mean it's necessarily vulnerable, but it never hurts to kind of check your IoT vendors security advisories or their product updates page to see whether or not there's some sort of a firmware update or some kind of acknowledgement that it might be an issue. Yeah, just to tack on to what Tony said, I mean, essentially you're reliant on the third party patching it. I mean, if you're using their hardware and their software designed for it, you're relying on what they're doing. But just because it has Java, as Tony said, doesn't always mean it's running the vulnerability. So, I mean, I have I was the end user. There's really not much you can do. It's other. It's either you use the products and you know just understand that any of the security patches are reliant on whoever you bought it from, and that applies to more than just the log for shell. I mean that applies to any really hardware you're buying that is connected to the internet. 
So the FTC recently issued a warning to all companies that use Log4j and have yet to patch for it, including referencing the Equifax breach settlement of $700 million before making the following statement. The FTC intends to use its full legal authority to pursue companies that fail to take reasonable steps to protect consumer data from exposure as a result of Log4j or similar known vulnerabilities in the future. So my question is, why might a company or, you know, like, like Kurt was saying, a third party not have patched this already, given how severe a vulnerability it is? Uh, if, you know, the risk isn't enough to make companies patch, do you think this warning from the FTC is going to have much impact? I think it's a matter of uptime and downtime of services. So if a company is able to have more uptime comparable to them getting charged or given a fee for not patching something. I think it all boils down to a business perspective. Does it make sense for me to have downtime on my servers for me to properly patch this? Or should I just take the millions of dollars thrown at me that I would have lost for being down for a day's worth of time anyways? I I think it's all a balance of where they're going to save the most money, like anything in business. Yeah, I have to agree with uh, that statement is um, a lot of companies kind of look at it as a cost versus benefit uh, calculus, you know, I really hate to say this, you know, I feel like all companies should be responsible with the user data that they are entrusted with, but a lot of them just look at it as a uh, cost calculus. Is it cheaper for me to take the uh, fees or take the, um, you know, being out of compliance uh, with the FTC's ruling or recommendation, or is it more cost efficient for me to take the loss of potential customers or, you know, or potential downtime and get the issue patched as soon as possible? Do I have um, high availability infrastructure so I can keep running while I'm patching part of my infrastructure? You know, it's that whole, just, it's just a cost benefit analysis for them. So they might be trying to fly under the radar and say, well, we didn't know that we had this, or it's you know, just a matter of what's the, cheap, or what's the cheaper alternative to them. I was poking around on Reddit a while ago, and I came across a debate that kind of touches into this. The question on, on this post was that should board members or the C-level executives be held criminally liable for cybersecurity lapses and breaches? Should, especially given how very public Log4Shell was, I mean, is that a conversation worth having? Well, I, I, I've got some strong opinions on that because um, we all saw what was going on with the Equifax breach in, in real time, how they had to testify before Congress and say, how did this issue happen? You were entrusted with so many people's information and credit data. And then they said, one of our IT admins was responsible. They were the ones that did it. And then it kind of just shows that there is no responsibility up top, you know, and even if it does get pinned on an executive or anybody in the C-suite, more often than not, that simply just means that they um, choose to part ways with that company and they get a severance package to move on to another company, albeit much more quietly. I mean, that's just my general opinion. Um, If anybody else has anything else to share or differing, uh, you know, differing thoughts or anything else to add, I'm I thought we just blame the interns for everything. Isn't that what everyone does? Uh-uh. <laughs> Get more or less jokes, but that's my two cents on all of it. But um, 
you know, even like uh, talking about that, I, I, I don't know how familiar uh, everybody here is with uh, the CISSP and all of that. Like, I don't actually have the certification, but in the distant past, when I was considering getting it and I was studying for it, you know, one of the key things that they always told you um, was that the upper management is usually responsible for whatever happens if it violates the law. So you got to make sure your ducks are in a row and that the people you're managing are actually you know, falling in compliance and doing what they are telling you that they are doing in order to make them compliant. But ultimately, if there's a data breach or something that usually falls um, up the chain, who was responsible for actually making sure this is compliant? Who is their manager? Why weren't they following up? But as we see in the real world, that isn't always the case. You know, like we're, we're talking about blaming the intern or blaming the IT guy for making sure it wasn't patched. It's like, well, whose fault was it that they didn't follow up on that? You know? And I mean, often in these cases, there's always one scapegoat, even if it is like the CISO or CIO or something. Usually it's the overall posture of the entire company, not just the one person who ends up taking the fall for it. Because, I mean, if you look at the CISO, how often in these times are they actually given the resources and support that they need to properly maintain the security of the company? And that often falls on the CIO and the CEO and other people, depending on who, how much money they end up getting. So blaming on one person is hard. I don't think it's ever one person doing it, but my, my whole point of saying, oh, it's the intern or, oh, it's the uh, one weird IT guy we don't like. It's easier to pin it on one person and quote unquote, say we resolved and fixed the issue. We, you know, got rid of the individual who made the mistake or all all of our policies are incorrect in order and they just happen to not follow it right. It's much easier to set a scapegoat like that and kind of pin it and throw it out. But Dusty, I agree with you 100% that I there's so many moving parts that it's almost, I would probably say in most cases, almost every case, not pinnable on one specific person. There's probably other moving parts that might have made that individual to make that mistake or something of the sort. And Tony, it's definitely the, it's definitely the higher ups on, I mean, at a certain point, you're as a, like the engineer or someone down more on the technical side of things, you're still not the one making the larger calls on stuff. You're the one kind of, you know, acting out the orders. So the person giving the orders, like you said, from uh, the CASSP and the courses you took and talking about that, like, I, I do agree it should fall on, you know, kind of the general or the commander making the statements or the rules that, the people below should be following. I think, um, you know, what the FTC's warning does make clear, you know, going back to that statement, um, is that this can have an impact on average internet users. So, you know, online shoppers, streamers, so on, you know, people who can be impacted by a business's decision uh, regarding log for shell and whether or not they patch. But, you know, avoiding exposure seems almost impossible. What steps can average users take to sort of protect themselves in the face of this and other vulnerabilities outside of their control? I think it's the basic end user precautions you need to take. Like the average person's not running a log for shells. They're probably running Java apps, you know, readily accessible from the internet from their house. I mean, except for maybe Minecraft, which was kind of where the stuff was found, but probably data ingestion and how you're setting your passwords and making sure the sites you're adding your data in is an over clear text and just basic kind of knowledge for the end user of good security practices. 
Yeah, I kind of say like the uh, the blog post that you link from the Hurricane Labs blog. It's a uh, pretty good practical information. You know, there are you're as an end user, you're kind of outside of the you know scope of influence as to like whether or not a company or a vendor you're using is patched properly if they patched at all. But the things that you can do are maintaining situational awareness, like around your identity or around your credit card or your checking account information, you know, you know I've got credit checking through uh, my provider um, and all of that kind of thing. And it's just a matter of, you know, checking your balances every so often and questioning where certain charges came from. Uh, it's a case of like being aware of um, your finances and where things are going. And then if you notice something strange, immediately shutting it down that's what you have control over. And it's one way to keep yourself protected is to be aware of what expenses are coming in and out of your account every month, you know? And what's sad, Tony, is that inconvenience of going through and changing that or the inconvenience of changing your passwords on, you know, X amount of sites. I think that inconvenience itself is what holds a lot of people back from actually having good, you know, end user security practices. Which is yeah, just I mean, that's like a lot of the times like why we find password reuse. It's, you know, it's because the culture doesn't tell, you know, like security culture at a company just tells you you have to go to security training and they say you can't reuse the same password. You got to change it every 30 to 90 days or whatever the NIST, the NIST standard seems to be. But like nobody at the company ever has like a sit down and say, you know, if you do this, if you use the same password, this also has like repercussions in your personal life. Like if you use the same password for say logging into um, your American Express uh, card site or that you use to log in from Netflix, you know, somebody could possibly get um, password data or there might be a compromise of Netflix or another streaming service. And then they're going to reuse those credentials and try and see if they can get access to anything else. You know, nobody ever puts it into that terms and say, this is why you should use a password manager. And this is why you should try and take advantage of multi-factor authentication whenever it's available. Sure, it's a pain in the butt to have your phone and have to type in those numbers. But the alternative is you have to reset your passwords or you have to worry about your bank account or your credit card being maxed out. Yep. And you can prioritize there. Like you don't need to go changing every single one of your passwords immediately, but just focus on your financials, on your email. Make sure you have two-factor on these and make sure they have secure, long passwords that are all different. That's the biggest thing. If you're using the same email, which I assume a lot of people have one main email, probably a Google account, or if you're older, you have a Hotmail account or something. Like, If you're doing that, you're logging into 10 different sites. And if you have the same password, that's an easy access to you know, probably your social media, your bank accounts, and et cetera, et cetera. My husband still uses his Hotmail. I had someone give me an AOL email address the other day. Goodness. Yeah. Wow. I think this one's opening up a whole nother can of worms that we may not uh, go down this rabbit hole, you know, but talking about two-factor authentication and the security of text messaging for that purpose. Well, like using SMS for two-factor. Right. Yeah. Yes. So... I've got opinions about that. And like a lot of people say, yeah, there are some security people out there that say like, if you're using SMS for two-factor off, then it's worse than having nothing at all. And I sincerely don't believe that, you know, like if it's the only option available to you, you know, NIST really doesn't recommend it. Our other cybersecurity standards don't recommend it. But if it's the only offer or option that your bank or your credit card company is giving you, 
you know, like if they don't want to give you like an actual like you know two-factor auth program like or be able to put something into your uh, google authenticator then i'd rather take it and have it than not have it at all something better than nothing exactly so our pen testers talked about a few tools uh, that they use to identify possible log for shell vulnerabilities, including burp suites, log for shell everywhere, uh, and an NSE script and zap. Are there any other tools or strategies that you can recommend to uh, help address this vulnerability? Um, I really don't have anything easy to add to that, but if it's in any kind of an application where the user is going to have the ability to input data it's it's one of those things it's like a much easier said than done thing but like if it's any kind of a web app or any kind of an internet app or anything that a user is going to have the ability to control the input you're going to want to probably you know, send a log for j payload at, to it to see if anything interesting gets logged elsewhere you know see if like there's any point where do you like it kind of goes back to the point that we made earlier do you know where these logs are going do you know where they're being collected um, but also, do you know where are the points where the user can actually input data and is that data validated in any way? Um, that's, that's, that's about all I really got. I mean, it, like it's, it's one of those things that's kind of painful to kind of enumerate every point where while well, this is, the user has the ability to influence what's going on here because they can put this in this input box or that in that input box, but you know, is it validated? Is it checked? And I mean, uh, I know I'm starting to sound like I'm rambling here, but that's that's the gist of it is, um, you know, aside from like uh, testing out your applications and using uh, Zap or using NSE scripts to kind of do touches here and there to see if, you know, just sending a payload or sending some, uh, a log for J payload and user agent string or as a part of like an HTTP request, the other alternative is to start testing your inputs. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this and for sharing those tips. Uh, this, that's all the time that we have for now. So listeners, be sure to check out our links for the resources that we've mentioned today. And until next time, stay safe.